Hey there, and welcome to Sex in the Sacred, where history, religion, and sexuality collide. I'm your host, Anna Zuckerman, and today I'm here to introduce you to one of the most important heroes in history. His story is the oldest one we have, and his religious and sexual exploits have helped shape the study of religion and sexuality as we know it. His name, first written in ancient Akkadian letters, is probably familiar to you. You're listening to Sex and the Sacred, and today we're talking about Gilgamesh. The Epic of Gilgamesh is the oldest piece of literature that we know of. Myths of Gilgamesh and various fragments of the story have been found here and there, the oldest of which date all the way back to 2100 BCE. Historians believe that Gilgamesh himself lived long before this, however, in approximately 2700 BCE, over four and a half thousand years ago. That's an insanely long time. The Epic of Gilgamesh, as we know it, comes from a later version of the story written in approximately 1300 to 1000 BCE. The epic was written across 12 clay tablets in Akkadian cuneiform and distributed widely throughout the Sumerian civilization. Although over a quarter of the text is missing, archaeologists have been able to piece together most of the story using the fragments of other copies found throughout the Fertile Crescent. The epic tells the story of Gilgamesh, king of Uruk, one of history's earliest known cities, and all of his many exploits. Let me introduce you to him. And as a content warning, this introduction will include mentions of sexual abuse. At the beginning of his story, Gilgamesh was not the kind of guy you'd want to spend time with. While the one-third man, two-thirds god was beautiful, strong, and wise, he was also a terrible king. He was a serial rapist, a slave driver, and an unrelenting tyrant. The people of Uruk prayed to the gods to save them from their predatory king, and the gods responded. They created Enkidu, a man who was raised by wild beasts, tamed by a temple prostitute, and brought back to Uruk to challenge the wicked Gilgamesh. This is where the story gets interesting. Enkidu arrived in the city in time to stop Gilgamesh from raping an unnamed young woman. The king and the wild man fought for a long, long time before Gilgamesh emerged the victor. However, instead of taking revenge on Enkidu for his challenge, the two men became inseparable companions. The relationship between Gilgamesh and Enkidu provides the context in which the rest of the story occurs. When the goddess Ishtar, mistress of love and beauty, propositions the king, the once sexually predatory Gilgamesh rejects her. Offended and enraged by his rebuke, Ishtar summons the bull of heaven, who is killed by Enkidu. This angered the gods, who took revenge by killing Enkidu himself. The death of his beloved companion shattered Gilgamesh completely, and eventually led him to begin a new quest for immortality, which, spoiler alert, he never found. The close of the epic reveals that his journey of love, loss, grief, and reflection have turned Gilgamesh into a changed king. No longer the tyrannic, predatory despot that he was before, Gilgamesh returns to Uruk a celebrated hero and legendary ruler for the ages. Okay, I know that was a lot. 
For those of you who would like to learn more about the epic or to read the text yourself, head to www.sexandthesacred.com. Click on the show notes tab to find the copies I've left for you. There is so much to learn about the story itself. However, I want to focus in on one particular aspect of the story, Gilgamesh's variety of sexual relationships. Let's go through them. First, we have the description of his insatiable lust for women. Gilgamesh, within the first moments of the story, is described as a man who, quote, leaves no girl to her mother. His licentiousness and predatoriness make him infamous, enough so that his subjects pray to the Mesopotamian gods for relief. This pattern of abhorrent behavior ends abruptly, however, with the advent of a second kind of relationship, Gilgamesh's relationship to Enkidu. Enkidu's coming is foretold in a dream, where Enkidu is represented as an axe. Gilgamesh relays his dream to his mother thus. I have seen puzzling things. In the street of Uruk of the plazas lay an axe, and they gathered around it. The axe, its form, was strange. I saw it and rejoiced. I loved it and caressed it as if it were a woman. I took it and placed it at my side. Sure enough, when Gilgamesh meets Enkidu, a wrestling match that, quote, shakes the doorway, end quote, ensues, before the two become sole companions and both reject all further encounters with women. The third and final sexual relationship in the story occurs between Gilgamesh and the goddess Ishtar. When the goddess proposes marriage and, of course, sex, Gilgamesh refuses immediately. In fact, he turns her down and then offers a comprehensive list of Ishtar's former lovers who she later spurned, cursed, or killed. This relationship between the once promiscuous Gilgamesh and the goddess of love is the final unrequited relationship between man and woman in the epic. Okay, so we've done a debrief of Gilgamesh's sexual relationships, and now we can see a pattern. Gilgamesh is promiscuous, and dangerously so, until he meets Enkidu. And once the two engage with each other, Gilgamesh is never mentioned to lust after a woman again. And this means that you might be wondering, was Gilgamesh gay? As I'm sure you're getting used to by now in this podcast, the answer is far more complicated than yes or no. And here's why. Language and its meaning change constantly along with our perception of the world. For example, Julius Caesar had a massive following among the Roman citizens during his tenor in the military. Likewise, the poet Homer wrote a story that was followed and circulated by millions of people. However, Julius Caesar was not known in his time as a celebrity. Neither was Homer referred to as a content creator. Why not, you might ask? Because those words and their modern meanings didn't exist in their time. Likewise, we can't say that Gilgamesh was or was not gay because words to describe sexualities along with our modern conceptions of them, did not exist at the time. It would be inappropriate of scholars to superimpose these modern connotations into an ancient context. It would muddy our understanding of the past by assuming that ancient people thought and perceived the world the same way that we do now. 
Just as we can't call Julius Caesar a celebrity because it would make us think of modern-day celebrity culture, we can't apply the label "gay" to Gilgamesh because it would make us think of modern LGBTQA+ culture. So you're probably wondering right about now, we can't put modern labels on ancient peoples. So then, how the heck are we supposed to understand ancient sexuality? Isn't that the whole point of this episode? Fair point. Let me explain. Scholars can understand the histories of sexuality by taking a non-labeled approach to examining relationships. Human relationships are and always have been fluid, complex, and deeply personal. In many ways, this aversion to modern labeling has allowed historians to get a far more realistic perception of what love, friendship, and kinship have meant to people over time. This is exactly how we can approach Gilgamesh and his experience of erotic love, without expectation from sexual labels, and with a sole focus on how he relates to those around him. Here's what scholarship has found: Gilgamesh and Enkidu's relationship clearly takes on erotic elements. Although the characters are not explicitly depicted to be lovers or to have had sexual intercourse. Author Susan Ackerman has identified 11 moments in the epic in which eroticism is highly present between the two. One of these is, of course, the story of the axe that represents Enkidu. The description of loving it as if it were a woman appears to be a direct reference to sex, one which is repeated when the grieving Gilgamesh places a sheet over the dead Enkidu's face. Ackerman expands on these moments in great detail, and though I have no time to explain her work further here, I urge you to visit the show notes where you can find the link to her book. Scholars have also argued in favor of Gilgamesh and Enkidu's relationship being romantic and exclusive as a result of Gilgamesh's encounter with Ishtar. While I do not believe that Gilgamesh's rejection of Ishtar can force us to see a romance between the king and Enkidu, I do think that his rejection of her brings his promiscuity arc to its close. At the beginning of the epic, Gilgamesh forces himself upon any woman in a rook he chooses. He is portrayed as a powerful young king with a poor moral compass and insatiable sexual appetite. When he encounters Ishtar. Having just returned from the cedar forest with Enkidu, he is disgusted by her advances. This is significant not just because he turns down a woman; it's significant because he's turning down the literal goddess of sex. Clearly, something in Gilgamesh has changed. His desire to be sexually involved with women has, as far as we know, entirely disappeared. A number of interpretations of this text argue that this points directly to Gilgamesh's relationship with Enkidu. After all, what else could have changed the king's disposition so entirely? While I agree that the text heavily implies that Gilgamesh rejects Ishtar as a result of his love for Enkidu, it is important to remember that this does not define his sexuality. It only portrays the strength of this one particular relationship. So. Now that we've covered some details and some interpretations of Gilgamesh and his sex life, you must be wondering why in the world this even matters. Why should we care about whether a legendary king from nearly 5,000 years ago had sex with a man or not? We need to care because the way we interpret the Epic of Gilgamesh 
goes a long way to shape the way we approach ancient Mesopotamian sexual politics. Let me explain. Myths and legends have always served, in part, as a reflection of the culture from which they come. Semi-mythical stories like the Epic of Gilgamesh are no different. When we read of Gilgamesh and his interactions with men and women, it's hard to ignore the role that gender plays in establishing social hierarchy. Throughout the story, Gilgamesh is affirmed again and again as a symbol of masculinity. He fights, he conquers, and he takes whatever sexual partner he desires. When Enkidu appears without Gilgamesh, he is also described in traditionally masculine ways. However, when he interacts with Gilgamesh, Enkidu takes on subservient and traditionally female characteristics. So why is that? And what does that mean? It means that Enkidu's masculinity, in some way or another, poses a threat to Gilgamesh and his dominance. In order for the two men to become as intimate with each other as they are in the story, one of them must surrender their masculinity. In order for Gilgamesh to remain the pinnacle of manhood, Enkidu has to become the, quote, woman of their relationship. And, as we know from Gilgamesh's interactions with both the women of his kingdom and with the goddess Ishtar, this means that Enkidu would be surrendering his authority as well. Enkidu's literary transformation from masculine to feminine descriptors tells us that gender dynamics and social hierarchy were crucial to social structure. While normally we would have to be very careful not to impose aspects of a largely fictional story onto a historical context, we have a little room here. And here's why. The Epic of Gilgamesh comes largely from the 12 tablets in Nineveh that I mentioned earlier. However, the blanks in the tablets have been filled in with other copies of the story, the fragments and pieces I told you about. That means that the Epic of Gilgamesh is a composite story. And, get this, they all depict these same gendered aspects to Gilgamesh and Enkidu's relationship. So this means that we can reasonably assume that the power dynamics in the relationships in this story come not just from one author of the epic, it comes from Mesopotamian culture itself. So cool, right? History feels like a great big jigsaw puzzle sometimes. So where do we end up? Could two men be in an openly romantic relationship if one of them took a visibly subservient role in ancient Mesopotamia? Could two women if one of them took on visibly masculine roles? While I would not claim that such an understanding would mean that the ancients were supportive of same-sex relationships, it would certainly be better than the violent homophobia we see in other historical contexts. However, as it always is in these matters, the real importance of the gender dynamics in the Epic of Gilgamesh may be far, far more complicated than this. Understanding the role that gender played in ancient sexual politics is essential for us as modern people. The intricacies of sexual politics are, in many ways, what have caused the rise and fall of empires. If we understand how gender, sexuality, and religion shape our cultural histories, then we have a far better shot at understanding how they impact our world today and how we can effectively advocate for a more equitable society. 
The Epic of Gilgamesh may not, at first glance, seem to bear the weight of centuries of sexual politics. And yet, I assure you, it does. The importance of history's first piece of literature, at least the earliest that we've found so far, cannot be underestimated. I dearly hope that some of you will go and read the epic for yourself. Let it steep a little and find the connections that tie this 5,000-year-old story to our world today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and learned not only about the legendary Gilgamesh, but about the ways that scholarship can approach the history of sexuality to best translate ideas through history. Next time on Sex and the Sacred, I'll be discussing a medieval French hero and how their defiance of female gender roles led to their untimely demise. You guessed it, I'm talking about Joan of Arc. Subscribe now to make sure you don't miss it. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to read any of the articles or books I mentioned today, including the text of the Epic of Gilgamesh, head to www.sexandthesacred.com where you can find the show notes for this and every episode. Likewise, if you'd like to get in on our super cool Sex and the Sacred t-shirts, mugs, clocks, and other merch, search for Sex and the Sacred on your Redbubble or Patreon pages, where you can find us and help support the show. That's all for now. I'm your host, Anna Zuckerman, and you're listening to Sex and the Sacred, where history, religion, and sexuality collide. Thanks for tuning in with me. I'll see you next time. Music